Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, John Bradford, Startup Next Lead at Techstars, on the future of innovation through accelerators and corporate ventures. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. And today I'm with John. Hi, John. Good afternoon. How are you? I know you, but for those who don't, and I'm sure there's not a lot of people remaining in London, especially who don't know you, who are you, John? Who am I? I think my therapist probably asks that question every week to me. I'm a born-again accountant. I spent the first half of my career in accountancy working between London and Melbourne, but the second half, which is much, much more interesting, I've spent a lot of time working in and around startups, either as an employee, as a founder, raising money for them and probably most recently working operating accelerators the last of which was Techstars in London. Probably a lot of people know you from Techstars and just previously what they call a springboard was that the that right was name? That was the predecessor right? before that yeah absolutely. Yeah yeah so a lot of people know you because of that and of course you're very active not only in London by the way you're very active all over the world we tend to meet each other never in London in some other cities <laughs> you know across the planet so accelerators you know there's been a boon of accelerators in the past five years to the point that sometimes it bears a bad name. It's not the reason why you stepped down off running the day-to-day operations at Techstars, but what is your view on accelerators nowadays? I think accelerators represent an underlying change structurally in the underlying markets around investment. They started about 10 years ago, 2005, 2006 was the inception of them. And there were a number of different elements which came together at that point. One was the cost of doing startups was dramatically falling. The numbers I used to tell people is, I was part of a startup in 2000. We did a seed round of $25 million. That was pretty normal then. Yeah, um, same story as <laughs> here. So yeah, <laughs> we're old farts. Right? Exactly. When you move forward and look at the cost of doing exactly the same thing now 15 years later, I think it would probably be somewhere about a quarter of a million dollars or 1% of the cost that it was or the investment previously. But inherently, the cost is declining. But with things like AWS and cloud computing, your ability to scale is much more interesting and you're paying as a pay-as-you-go model, but overlaid that with the value of networks with Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, suddenly means the intangibles, the, the value of expertise and knowledge and networks suddenly becomes compounded and much more inherently valuable. So a combination of these three elements moved us to this place, which was the inception of accelerators 10 years ago. I'm a strong believer in there's a a format which existed 10 years ago, which is definitely what I would call version 1.0. Techstars and Y Combinator are constantly flexing and moving those models. You can see some really innovative stuff happening around the edges as well. But I think one of the things which I've spent a lot of my last 12 months doing is talking to VCs about the opportunities that they have, not in a accelerator format, but how do you bring together and drive both dollars, but actually institutional knowledge from potentially partners who were operators historically through the value of network, 
So I think it's starting to become a blended process at that really early stage, particularly up to and including that scale-up function, which is typically a Series A. You just mentioned the word institution. So you see there's a link with your past career. You made that big differentiation between the John before and John after. I mean, there's a link with institutions. See, Uh, you put that link there. You have done that already a bit with Techstars, right? Because you've been running, I think, an accelerator for Barclays, for instance, which is a bank in the UK. Do you think that link can evolve even more? more then. If there's one thing that I'm really excited about in the current market is actually around that overlap now between corporate innovation and investment. And I believe something like the Techstars Barclays program, which exists, is a representation of that. So you have this kind of blended approach, which is now happening. 15 years ago, there was the birth of CVC's corporate venture capital funds at one extreme You've now seen over the last kind of three or four years the birth of corporate accelerators. But all of these are indications of the increasing demand in the market from large corporates to try and engage and participate with early stage businesses. Let's call them that versus pure startups, because I think it's the most value that corporates can get is not necessarily from what I would call pre-seed, but seed and even series A type companies. To throw in some numbers, I'm particularly fascinated by fintech in London. I think on any given year, venture capital in the US represents about 30 to $40 billion, of which on a good day, somewhere between 5 and 10% goes to fintech. If you look at the amount of dollars which are spent by financial institutions on technology in London alone, last year it was over $300 billion dollars. So we kind of get fixated by the big numbers that exist inside venture, but it pales into complete insignificance when you start to look at what corporates are spending on technology on an annual basis. The numbers are just dwarf what we think is important inside venture. And so I think there are structural changes happening inside a broader corporate market, not just fintech. I'm hugely bullish about what B2B looks like as enterprise comes online over the next 10 years. I think it's just a massive, massive opportunity and shift in the market. There's almost two school of thought here because you have people that will say, yeah, but these are the incumbents that will disappear. They will try to react, but they will disappear. And others that say a bit more like you that, well, they'll slow moving because there are these used ships, but at some point they will get their shit together. Sorry, pardon my French. And they will actually invest their capital, not in traditional R&D, but going the direction to early stage businesses through accelerators or other models. Are you a believer of that second option? Do you think or is it going to be a blend of both? I think it will ultimately be a blend. Large corporates who are running accelerators represent institutions who have almost gone through that alcoholics process of admitting they have a problem. <laughs> um, and whilst an accelerator in itself won't necessarily fix the underlying problems, it actually represents a statement of intent that they sort of want to participate in the system. And this is a good example of how they do it. I think there'll be much more in different versions of not just Accelerators 1.0, but there'll be 2.0 and 3.0, and the model will evolve and change. I think corporates will end up with, let's just use a glib statement, a chief startup officer who effectively is in charge of innovation by leveraging third-party technologies 
rather than trying to build everything inside a walled garden, which is what they've historically done. Nonetheless, for those corporates who don't get on that boat quickly or get on that train, I think they will get left behind quite quickly. A really good example of this is if you spin back to 2000 with ad tech, everybody was kind of predicting the end of agencies and that they were doomed and ad tech was going to take over. And I'm kind of thinking about this in the New York context. If you spin forward 10 to 15 years, actually most of those agencies still exist. And by the way, those agencies were the biggest buyers of those startups which existed over that 10 to 15 year period. There were a few that broke out and managed to get sufficient critical mass to become as big as some of those agencies. And I would be pretty predictive of that will replicate itself, for example, in fintech, which is there will be lots of interesting startups, most of which will be acquired, actually ironically, by incumbents. Because guess what? The one thing you can consistent of around banks is they've got money. That's why people rob them. Um, <laughs> but essentially, I think there will be a few that manage to break critical mass and the gravity of the industry itself and be large and successful. But I personally believe that banks and financial services will be potentially the biggest acquirers of most of this technology, which is going to come through over the next 10 years. So do you think that the win for corporates is pretty evident? It's, you know, innovation. Instead of going through the R&D route, they're getting innovation through that different, more network route. The win for early stage startups is clearly to work all well with corporates. But some people say that accelerators are the new MBAs. Is that something you also believe in or not? Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. I had a rant the other day on Twitter, which basically said, when did doing consecutive accelerators suddenly become acceptable? It's like you don't do two MBAs because it makes you smarter. I think if you can't do one and create value, you can do one and then go into a specialist subject, which is probably the equivalent of a generic into something which is a specialist accelerator. I think coming back to the point about corporates, it really comes down to how seriously do they participate and take part in this process. So I have this thing which is called startup safaris petting zoos for startups but effectively <laughs> it's notional idea that actually you can see corporates and how they behave around startups sometimes it's oh look at this nice little startup it's like going into a zoo and pointing at all of the different animals and, and over there's a b2b which does x y and z i think the real value for both parties in that process only come about not from smiling at each other across a mentoring table but engaging with each other through some sort of an early stage pilot. And I'm a great believer in that even corporates can learn, even if the pilot itself is not successful, they can actually learn a lot from actually trying to do something through a pilot or a trial with the startup, which prepares them better for the next one. It's almost like dating to try and find your wife, which is, it might not be the right one, but it's worth going on a few dates so that you don't stuff it up by the time you find the right one. Is there then a premium on scale by that, I mean, and I'm not talking about finding your wife, uh, but I mean, isn't there a, a premium of first being in a big city, uh, London is one, but also probably being a big corporate as in having a lot of capital to invest. And on the other side, if you're running an accelerator, isn't there a premium of being also a big accelerator? So meaning... Do you see that we will have some kind of Darwinism in the accelerator world where a lot of accelerators will end up disappearing because they haven't achieved escape velocity? I think there's a life cycle. Techstars has done an amazing job working with a lot of corporates in this sector. What we have seen is a lot of those corporates have ultimately decided to bring that function in-house. 
because they feel it's a core competency for what they want to do, that will be an actual life cycle. But I actually also think, interestingly, they make it to a point where they actually recognize that to ensure that they don't kill the startups which participate in their programs, that they actually may end up then outsourcing that function back out again to a third party. And I kind of think about this in the context of like advertising agencies. Some organizations do everything primarily in-house. Some people do it with a third party, an external point. Sometimes you have somebody who's responsible for managing a budget internally, but then outsource it. So I'm coming back to really uh, excited that there is a massive opportunity here. It's not clear what the outcome is. And actually, in reality, I think we'll end up with a spectrum of different versions with different organizations taking on different ways, whether that's purely outsourced or internal or a combination thereof. The other point, you mentioned London, you mentioned obviously fintech, which is heavily linked with the city we both live in. You've been a believer in staying and living in the UK. I guess a lot of people in your place would have at some point moved to the US because they would have thought or assumed that it would be easier to scale, easier to raise. Do you think there's still this attraction and that the US is still overtaking us in terms of the startup movement overall? The real reason why I stayed in the UK was actually probably one of the biggest reasons why people stay and not go somewhere else is I was starting a family at the time and I particularly didn't want to drag them around behind me. They've been hugely tolerant of many things in my life. And I think recognizing that there are other things in life, and I think that's actually interesting because in one respect, that's why Europeans are pretty disposed the way they are. But actually, I also think that that's one of the most attractive parts that I've seen Americans come and wish to establish themselves in London because they kind of feel that there is this kind of much more interesting blend between work-life type balance, whatever that means in startup life. One of the things that you're describing is really interesting, which is not only are we learning to do startups much more quickly and more effectively, actually I strongly believe that we're getting much better and much more effective at spinning up ecosystems. I think the first real version of this, which people spent time and energy looking at, was the Boulder phenomena, which was what Techstars was part of. Techstars was part of that process. There were a couple of other major actors in that system. But I think a lot of this kind of cluster behavior is really interesting. But it also creates this broader opportunity, which is there are now more opportunities which exist beyond the West Coast of America. And I think the problems, the example I always give, is the problems which are going to be fixed in Africa over the next 10 years aren't going to come because you've got an iPhone in your hand. It may be the secondary effects of that technology, but I don't think somebody who's been to Stanford, unless they've had some direct experience of living or working in someone like Africa, is going to fix their problems. That's going to come from people locally, or that's going to come from people who have access to those networks. And if you genuinely believe that the broadest market being global is now open for opportunity, I think it creates really interesting dynamics. And if I take that one more step, there is an argument which basically says that actually maybe Facebook was the very last global business. And that actually there are now more interesting businesses which are big in their own right. And I think if you look at what's happening around messaging, I don't think there's going to be one dominant player in messaging. There's going to be five or six. And they may have areas of density in certain continents than others. 
but Facebook almost is that very last player who managed to get their arms around fast enough that the local players didn't manage to squash them out in the process. I do agree. I mean, you know me, I do work a lot in emerging countries and I've seen that kind of dynamic happen. But if I mix that message with the Accelerator 2.0, then we're closer to an unnamed big startup factory that is based in Berlin, but is very active in emerging countries. And it is spin out very, very rapidly and a rapid pace with local partners and local forces, startups all over emerging countries. And they're also at the same time being heavily criticized. I'm not saying that you were <laughs> pitching that model, but are we not that closer to Rocket Internet? No, I think we're getting smarter at doing venture building. And I think that might be something that corporates will spend a lot of time and money and energy in because it helps fix our problem, which is if I throw money at a problem, does it help me? I think actually working with startups is inherently harder than people think it is. And being able to align the interests inside a large corporate and the culture and how that dynamically mixes with startup culture is hard work. I think where I'm, I'm moving the topic on towards is, so if one thinks of an accelerator as an extension of what angels used to be in a much more structured format, I think there's a lot of interesting things happening around seed funds and even Series A, which are actually saying, can we take some of the core values which accelerators applied and actually trying to find structure around what we do as investors to create not just we write a check, which is what historically investors were all about, but actually dynamically, can we bring value through additional resources in an Anderson Howitz model? Can we bring greater access to the alumni, uh, which is a first round type model? And or actually, we just actually have GPs, which are operators, and can they help support and drive value that way? So I think those are are extensions or variations of what the accelerator was doing. It just doesn't happen to look like 13 weeks, but it does have this broader spectrum of we need to do more than just give you cash. We actually do genuinely have to provide some value beyond the dollar values in our bank account. You're also an angel investor, right? As I am. Right? I have moments. I'm not. I'm not particularly good at it because I always invest in people I like. I have the same problem. I don't. Yeah. I don't invest in arseholes, as I would describe. Because when we look at Y Combinator, for instance, because of the span, the reach and the years they've been active, they sort of have an alumni system now that exists, right? So do you think that that dynamic could be replicated with a less structured approach, groups of angels? Is that something you're seeing happening? No, I haven't seen that. But I don't know if you're aware, there's a, a new venture fund in London called Spring Ventures run by yes. Russell Buckley. And one yes, of the things they're doing is they're sharing some of the economics upside of the fund between all of the different founders in which they invest. I think that's an interesting variation of how do you incentivize or align the interests of the founders and actually for them to a, engage and participate in the community and network around themselves in that kind of format. And versions of that have historically existed around Techstars and Y Combinator. I think the only risk with angels is they tend to come and go on any given occasion and they tend to have slightly different cycle times about sometimes they have money and they invest and sometimes they don't. I strongly believe in the reason why we're friends is they're just a very natural group of people who are always predisposed to help, whether they're investing or not. And I think how you create structure around that is actually quite hard. So now, if I just go on the other side of the funnel here, as a founder, does it change anything, basically? Does it change your approach of creating a company or not? Have you seen any changes in the past five years 
using how funders would approach you when you were running Techsters. The biggest inherent issue is people have got, in a weird way, smarter at raising money. So they know how to play the game of raising money. And sometimes being good at the game of raising money doesn't necessarily predispose oneself to actually building a good business. Sometimes people get caught up in the flashy, flashy lights of venture funds and and what capital is versus actually the primary motivation that people should have is I want to go and build a big, interesting business and satisfy a real need that is a customer need. I suspect what's actually happened, and I think there's been a bit of a reset happened since the start of the year, which is the process of raising money has got in the way of building businesses. And I think since the slowdown, we're kind of in this weird dimension of, was there a slowdown? Is there a slowdown? I I recently wrote a blog post, which I asked somebody on Twitter about this. It's called Phantom Traffic Jams, which is traffic jams, which mean that everybody slows down. But when you get to the thing that you thought was a problem, it never existed. And it feels like in the current investment market that we're going through this kind of phantom traffic jam type process, which is there seems to be a slowdown and everybody's looking at everybody else and everything seems to be grinding to a stop. And then they go, actually, nothing's changed. I think everybody's resetting their expectations around money raised and valuations. But I think people have doubled down since Christmas in terms of just really thinking harder about their businesses rather than the process of money. The other thing I wanted to ask you, because otherwise we could talk for hours. Uh, we regularly do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, is that project you've been, uh, because you're based also in Cambridge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been involved in a new uh, building, which is not existing yet. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Yeah, by good fortune or misfortune, I've been roped in to help launch a building in Cambridge called the John Bradfield Centre. Nothing to do with me. However, <laughs> there is a rumor going around that I might change my name by deep But what's really interesting is Cambridge, I don't think anybody has ever argued otherwise, has some inherently extremely smart people. And when you dig back into some of the big exits over the last three or four years, then you think about DeepMind and you think about SwiftKey. A lot of those guys originated at Cambridge at some point in their life at the university. And one of the most interesting dynamics of this new building is how can we help support the students coming out of that not necessarily in a process of stopping them go to London because I think the smart ones will still go but actually creating much more structure around and supporting entrepreneurship with students and actually on the broader community itself. The building is about 40,000 square feet we have the capacity for about 700 desks. I think it's technically going to be the biggest incubator in Britain under a single roof and it's currently in the process of being built so it's not going to be ready for about 12 months but I've been assigned the wonderful title of director of that space which basically means I wave my arms around at the front and talk about (laughs) content and curation and centre working themselves who are actually going to make it run which is a bloody good job because I'd be awful at doing that it's kind of a twofold process it allows us to create a natural meeting point in Cambridge for the best and the brightest but equally it allows people who are coming from outside of Cambridge to actually use it as a gateway building to basically find or meet with other people from the Cambridge community. Cambridge is clearly, I think it celebrated its 800th birthday quite recently, that being the university. And as a result, there's not a single focal point. It kind of is endemic throughout the whole town itself. So this creates a nice lightning rod for both internally and for externally. But it's a massive 
burden on my shoulders to kind of not screw it up. <laughs> There's always this uh, belief, as sometimes it's a myth, that you have to drop out of university to become someone very successful. You mentioned corporates that will be more involved in the startup world. Do you think universities will do as well? Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this building is it's actually a building being built by Trinity College. So it's not actually by the university itself. So it sits adjacent to the university and clearly has relationships to it. But it is being run quite strongly as a commercial building to try and find interesting people. You're never going to win a battle with a university which is 800 years old. They're just going to outlive you. So I think one has to not necessarily fight them. I think one has to find a way to work with them. Finally, because we're running out of time, we will do another podcast and so many tips you could give to startups, actually, because you've seen so much. I'm sure people want to reach you. What's the best way to reach you? Twitter? Twitter, which is JD, or they can get my on my email, which is JD at jd.me you're so lucky to have these very short handles everywhere yeah it's I'm called so jealous it's called being an early adopter <laughs> <laughs> well i'm the old fart again here apparently thank you john so much for today i really enjoyed it my pleasure <laughs>